Right. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and uh, open it to 2 Corinthians 5. Am I not on? Or hold on one second. Okay. Turn your Bibles, if you got it, uh, at home, uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read in verses 1 through 10. Read with me the Apostle Paul's words here. 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not, uh, we do not want to be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be clothed, but to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, a guarantee of what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so that, so we make our, it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad." Paul, in this passage, uh, is using a couple of different metaphors. Uh, the tent uh, and the house, clothed and unclothed. He's using these couple different metaphors to describe uh, death, to talk about death and what comes after it, which are some things that my guess would be a lot of us have had on our minds a little bit more frequently than normal right now. Uh, with the sad reality of a global virus uh, that is taking more lives every day, I, uh, I bet that you've probably thought about death a little bit more in the last couple weeks than you had before that. But the thing is, it, it shouldn't take uh, something like a global pandemic for us to be thinking about them. Uh, the reality is, coronavirus or not, you're dying. We all are. You know, try as we might, no one has managed to escape death yet. All right, there's potential for Ellen DeGeneres, who seemingly hasn't aged for the last 30 years or something, but for the rest of us mere mortals, it's not a question of if, but when. Some of us, can manage to maybe not have to think about it a whole lot. You know, just we're, we're happy, we're healthy, we're fit, but regardless of where you are, eventually death starts poking 
his nosy little head into our business. Uh, allegedly, when I was a kid, uh, one time my dad, I'm too young to remember this, was bent over tying my shoes, and uh, I looked down at the uh, giant bald spot on the top of his head with astonishment and yelled out, Daddy, your head is poking through your hair. Uh, I trust you're laughing at that at home, but if not, don't worry. I have better. Um, now, I'm 31, right? And my head is slowly poking through my hair. Right? Scientists will tell you, our bodies peak about late 20s, and then from there on out, every day that goes by, we age a little bit more, we break down a little bit more, we become a little bit more frail, we get a little bit closer to the end. And that's if you're lucky. A lot of people never even make it that far. Paul here is writing to dying people like you and me, and showing us what is on the other side of the death that we're all going to experience and what it means for us now, what it means for us living today in light of what we know is coming. And there's one word, one word, that's actually not in this passage, but the thought is one word that Paul says describes how every Christian can live in the light of the death that we all know we're going to face. And Paul shows us in this passage that there are four fruits of hope, four responses in the light of death that with COVID-19, we're all thinking about a little bit more right now, four responses that Christian hope produces in the face of death. It gives us joy, angst, certainty, and awe. So first joy, uh, Christian hope in the light of death, Paul says, produces in us surprisingly joy. All right, so he says in verse one, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, if the body that we live in right now dies, he says, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not made by human hands. Now what Paul's doing here is he's uh, contrasting two different ages that the Bible says divides uh, the history of the world, right? So there's the present age that we live in right now, that where Paul describes our bodies as tense, temporary, things that are ultimately going to come to an end. At some point, we'll literally, the verb is be pulled down, we'll, we'll be destroyed. That's the present age where we are now. And he's contrasting that with the future age, the age to come, when in the future, at the end of time, Jesus returns to renew this world and his people, where we will live, as Paul says, in these eternal houses, ones not made by human hands. This is what he later on in the chapter calls the new creation, where we will live in this earth in resurrected bodies that will be transformed into complete uh, spiritual, physical beauty meaning that we will have the life we always wanted in the world we've never had. And it's this incredible future that Paul says, if you're a Christian, this is what's waiting for you on the other side of death. And if we're being honest, I mean, this is all uh, beyond really the capacity of what we have to understand. Chris Wright, who's a, uh, he's a Northern Irish biblical scholar, 
He says that you and me, uh, sitting here right now, trying to figure out and think through what our resurrection life will be like on the other side of death, he says it's like two twins in the womb talking back and forth to each other about what life is going to be like once they're born. Meaning uh, that as much as we try, we really have no categories for how unthinkably amazing this new age, this new creation will be. But we're given a glimpse. We're given a preview. In the Gospels, uh, there's a moment where Jesus takes two of his disciples, Peter and John, up to a mountaintop. And as he does, when he gets up to the mountaintop there, he is transformed right in front of them into complete spiritual, physical glory. And the gospel writers tell us when the disciples see this, they are astonished. They fall down on their face. They're overwhelmed. They're mesmerized by what they see. Well, what is it that they're looking at? They're getting a glimpse in this moment of what the resurrected Christ will be like of the building not made by human hands, of the eternal house in heaven that Paul says, if you're a Christian, you will be too. If you're in Christ, this is your future. In the end, you will both be with Christ and like Christ forever. And it's this incredible resurrection future that fills Paul with all this joy in the light of death, so much so that it leads him in uh, Philippians 1 to say, you know what, while this life is good and while the calling that God's put uh, on my life right now is good, ultimately, if I were to die, it'd be gain. Now, can you imagine for a second, in a global pandemic, how crazy people would think you are if you were to say, you know what, this life is pretty good. Uh, and, you know, the things God's called me to, into it are good and as unpleasant as the experience of death will be, I'm not afraid. You know, in fact, I would be better for it if I died. You know, modern people, if they heard you say that, would think you're crazy. There's a reason for that. Um, that's actually uh, different than any other religion. You see, every uh, religion that's ever existed sees death as something that's moving you toward uh, some sort of goal, right? So if you're Hindu, uh, death is a gateway for you to reincarnate into hopefully a better life. Uh, if you're Muslim, uh, death is a way to free you from this material world to live in this spiritual world. We could go on and on and on. It's only modern Western understanding of life that has no place for death. And why? Because death, in our modern Western understanding of life, is merely an interruption to what we're told the point of life is. You know, modern life, we're told, is this. You are meant and supposed to be as free and as happy as you possibly can. And the greatest enemy of that, ultimately, is death. And so because of that, our just modern thought that we are all uh, swimming in today has no purpose, no point to death whatsoever. It just sees it merely as the end of you living for your happiness and freedom right now. But what Paul's telling us in verse 1 is that death, as inevitable 
as it is, as uh, painful as it is when it separates us from the people that we love, uh, as unpleasant as the actual experience of death is, Paul's telling us it's actually moving you towards something better. It's moving you toward the house not made with human hands. It's moving you toward this resurrected future where we will live on this earth made with Christ and like Christ forever. It's this hope, he says, that produces in us first joy. But second, it produces in us angst. Paul says uh, that meanwhile, meanwhile, while we live here on this life, we groan. We have this angst. Uh, that as he puts it in verse 4, for while we are in this tent, in this life, we groan in our burden because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what's mortal might be swallowed up by life. Right now, where we live in bodies that age, that break down, that are frail, that are vulnerable, that require us to uh, be six feet apart from each other at all times, to self-isolate, to socially distance, to watch this on your home right now and not in person, right now, we groan. The word that Paul uses there literally is describing a woman who's in childbirth, who, while in the moment she's filled with this uh, joyful anticipation of getting to see her new baby for the first time, uh, she's also racked with this pain of the process. Paul is saying, in light of death, the hope of the resurrection, this joyful hope produces this angst inside of us. Because we, while we're full of joy, in one sense, of knowing where our future will ultimately be in Christ, in knowing this new age, this new creation that is coming, we're not there yet. And so because of that, it produces in us this angst. Because while we're wait, we wait, we're burdened. Literally, the word is weighed down by suffering, loss, pain, as we long for what we know is ultimately going to come in Christ. For as he describes it, for what is mortal, the things in this life, suffering, sin, death, to be swallowed up by life, to be swallowed up by what God is doing in our world through Christ that he will ultimately complete in this new age, this new creation, when Jesus returns to make everything new. In other words, Christian hope should produce a certain level of angst in you. Not merely, though, because um, of the pain and the suffering that we all experience, but because the pain and the suffering deepens in us this longing for what we were ultimately created for, for resurrection life with Christ. So do you feel that angst? Um... From what we can tell, just from reading First and Second Corinthians, um, broadly speaking, this wasn't true of everyone, but broadly speaking, the wealthier part of the church in Corinth, which was actually the minority, um, had lost this longing 
for the future glory that they know is coming in Christ. Uh, they had gotten comfortable and cozy with their easy life right now. And so a lot of scholars think that Paul, in part in this passage, is telling those people in the church in Corinth who've gotten comfortable and cozy that as good as this life is, it is nothing, nothing compared to what's to come. That Christians should live with this certain angst, this certain tension, this certain groaning, because as good as this life is, redeemed in Christ that we're enjoying right now, we want what's even better. We want the hope of this resurrection life where we will be with Christ and like Christ, transform people in a transformed world forever. So have you grown comfortable? Have you grown cozy with your life at ease right now? You know, is what troubles you more at the end of the day your sin or the size of your house? Are you longing for what's ultimately yours in Christ in the future or for just what's right in front of you right now? Don't waste this global pandemic. Use the shock of it to be smelling salts, if need be, to wake you up for what you're truly living for, for what you're truly longing for. Because Paul is saying, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be entirely comfortable in this life. You should experience some level of groaning, of angst, of frustration, but, it's, but different than what I normally experience. Right? The angst that I experience is, well, I'm frustrated that you know, my career isn't where you know, I want it to be, or I'm you know, financially not far off as long as I want it to be, or you know, the goals that I set five years ago I haven't achieved yet. As disappointing as those things are, no, the angst that he's talking about is different. It's an angst that comes from knowing the joy that we have in our resurrection future of Christ and not being there yet. So this hope of resurrection produces first joy that leads second to angst, but then gives us third a certainty in what we're hoping for. And Paul gives us two reasons for this certainty. First, subjective. Right, so after describing uh, the groaning, the angst that this hope produces, uh, he says, in verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. Now this purpose that uh, Paul says God is preparing us for is what Paul's just talked about in the verses before this, to be uh, clothed with our heavenly dwelling, for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life, to experience finally this resurrection life that we are hoping and longing for. But the way that God's preparing us for this is what actually transforms our angst into certainty. Paul is saying God's preparing us for this resurrection hope by giving us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, you've got to understand here, the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who at the end of time will be the one to completely transform us. 
into spiritual, physical beauty. Paul is saying that Holy Spirit of the future, of the new age, of the new creation is present in us now as a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing us with certainty that we will experience this final transformation. You see, it's this presence of the Holy Spirit that actually creates that angst, that tension, that frustration inside of us. You know, part of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is maximize, not minimize, the contrast to where we are right now and where we ultimately want to be one day in Christ. To heighten, not diminish the tension between living in tents that are ultimately going to diminish and living in these eternal dwellings, these resurrected bodies, meaning that if you're struggling, if you're experiencing tension, if you are frustrated spiritually, if you're wanting more out of your relationship with God, that shouldn't discourage you, but actually encourage you. That angst and frustration is actually a sign that the Holy Spirit of the new creation, who will finally fully transform you, is already there in you, creating this longing, creating this angst inside of you for more of what you were created for, Christ. So this hope produces certainty that we can sense subjectively through the Holy Spirit in us, creating this angst for what he will finally finish in us. But then it also produces a certainty that we can know objectively. Paul says uh, in verse 8, we're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says he's confident here that when the time comes, this uh, future hope will become a reality because the one who he's hoping in is already there. You know, in the Middle Ages, um, when explorers were trying to travel uh, from Europe over to Asia uh, to trade with them, uh, no one had figured out at that point, at that time, how to round the point on the bottom of South Africa. Uh, people had tried uh, countless times and failed miserably, so much so that uh, they had called it the point of South Africa there, the Cape of Storms. And it was literally a junkyard of wrecked ships until 1489, Vasco da Gama sailed from Portugal, rounded the point of South Africa reaching as far as India and even China, and then coming all the way back, returning to Portugal victorious, renaming in the process the point on the bottom of South Africa from the Cape of Storms to the Cape of Good Hope because he had come back to Portugal and proven the impossible is now possible. And Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, has proven to us that the impossible is now certain if you're in Christ. On the cross, Jesus experienced death. He tasted it, the author of Hebrews tells us. The true cape of storms, the one that no one's managed to overcome. And three days later, he resurrected, making a mockery of death. In his resurrection, Jesus Christ, he destroys death. He resurrects, taunting the one thing that's terrorizing you and me and humanity ever since Adam and Eve. 
This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's gone because Christ is resurrected and he's defeated it. And so now Paul says in verse 8 that because of that, we have certainty that when the time comes, just as Christ has been resurrected to spiritual and physical beauty, if you're in him, so you will be too. So this hope produces this joy that then leads to this angst that creates a certainty and lastly leaves us with awe. In verse 10, Paul reaches the climax of this passage uh, where he's convinced the believers in Corinth that in the face of death that we will all experience, we've got a bright, incredibly bright future. In the new age, the new creation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After all of this, he reaches his climax finally. And in verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us, for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What? Really? This is it? This is what God's resurrecting us for? So that we can all stand before the judgment seat of Christ where he will comb through every part of our lives? No, thank you. No, I'd rather stay dead. What a miserable bait and switch this sounds like. I mean, this doesn't sound like good news at all. This sounds like terrible news. And it is terrible news. Until you see the one who will be judging you. Have you ever wondered, when you read through the Gospels, why of all the ways the religious leaders could have killed Jesus. They chose the one they did. I mean, they could have done it so many different ways. Why send Jesus to the Roman government and have him be executed? Well, it was no accident. No, God was using this particular way to reveal through it what he's going to do in Jesus' death. Jesus' death was a judicial death. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't assassinated. He was judged. When the Jewish leaders brought Jesus before Pilate, the governor, uh, it was a trial. There was an arraign arraignment. There were accusations. There was a verdict and ultimately a condemnation by a judge. Picturing what is about to happen on the cross when Jesus is condemned by the true judge. In the Old Testament, the prophets said that there would be this great day of judgment that would come at the end of time, called the day of the Lord, when God would judge all sin in light of his perfect holiness. And a sign, the prophets said, that this day had come would be that the sun would go down at noon and it would be as dark as night. And at noon, as Jesus hung on the cross, the gospel writers tell us the sun went down and darkness covered the entire scene. 
God's judgment day had come, and it had come early, and he was judging the sin of you and me in his son on the cross. You know, we're all thinking about death a little bit more right now with this virus. But you know what death ultimately is? It's not simply the end of some biological life cycle. No, death is a legal sentence. Death is ultimately the consequence of humanity's rebellion against God. You know, the risk of death that we're all feeling a little bit more right now, naturally because of the virus, should ultimately remind us of how death got here because we're all guilty of sin. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ, in love, accepted the legal consequences of our sin. He was condemned guilty in our place. This is the good news of the gospel that we're celebrating in the midst of a virus today, that in Christ, your judgment day has gone from future to past and paid forever by Jesus Christ. So that now, at the end of time, when every person who's ever lived is resurrected to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of their lives that will decide their eternal destiny, you don't have to fear the outcome. Because you know that God has already judged your sin in Christ. You have legally been acquitted by the God who loves you with an irreversible finality. God cannot and he will not bring up anything you've ever done against you now. This right here, verse 10, is what separates the gospel from every other religion. They all say, spend your life pleading your case. Spend your life anxiously working to hopefully at the end here, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the gospel says you live right now out of already having heard that in Christ's cross. You see, it's this judgment that Paul says we all have to pass through before this new age, this new creation, this resurrection life, the life we all want in the world we've never had, it's this judgment we have to pass through before it will begin. And knowing that our judgment has already been paid in Christ, what does Paul say it should produce in us? Awe. Paul says that resurrection hope ultimately produces in us awe. Because at the end of time, our new life will begin by us standing before the judge who was in love, judged for you. And we will receive from that what is due to us that we didn't earn, that we didn't deserve, but is ours now through free grace. It's this resurrection hope in the light of death, in the light of COVID-19, that Paul says, ultimately produces in us awe that makes us want to live right now for the one who's loved us so. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the face of a virus that has us anxious, worried, fearful, we can know with confidence the resurrection future that we have coming for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, we know that at the end of time, you will complete this transformation in us. And we pray 
that until then, you continue to fill us with hope. Hope that nothing can take from us. Hope that comes through Christ. Amen.